So you might be having an argument with a climate denialist or an anti-vaxxer. And once you start getting into a dominance struggle where you're saying, yeah, but you, you are wrong about this. Let me explain to you why you're wrong, right? I love it when people say that to me. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Really. Who, like, yeah. I mean, who, who responds well to that? Who, and, and of course, what it does is it pushes the other person into the most intransigent version mm. of their argument. Maybe not even one that they fully believe, right? But you're pushing them into that harder position. Well, you know how it is, right? Sometimes or some days, people just rub you up the wrong way. They get right on your wick, and you get right on their wick. And before long, you are screaming at each other. Sometimes these are even people that you love, sometimes more than anyone else in the world. What's going on there? What makes us argue and bicker? What makes us disagree and have conflict? How can we do it better and worse? And what is the best way, if there is one, to argue or even just talk constructively with someone who thinks something apparently so opposite to you about things like climate change. This is Your Brain on Climate. I'm Dave and I've been campaigning and talking about climate change for the best part of two decades now and there's so much I don't know about one of the most important causes of it all, human brains and how they work. So Your Brain on Climate is a podcast about psychology, what it can teach us about climate change, how we got it, and what we might do about it. This week I had the great pleasure of talking to Ian Leslie. Ian is a writer and an author of books on human behaviour, including a book that I read recently, Conflicted, about what we're going to talk about today, which I absolutely love. Why do we argue? Why do we disagree? And how can we do it better? Ian and I got on famously, really enjoyed chatting to him. We talked about how to productively disagree and why you should try and productively disagree with people, even if, like me and like him, you're naturally conflict-averse. We talked about why if you find someone to be horrible and obnoxious in an argument, it might be your fault in the first place. We talked about social media, including horrible Twitter, and how and when you should use it. And we talked about climate deniers and anti-vaxxers. Why do people appear to think things that are in contradiction of common sense? If you think differently, should you even bother talking to them? Spoiler, yeah, you might learn something. We started, appropriately enough, by talking about how you start. How do you start having a conversation with someone to minimise the chances of ending it screaming at each other? Your brain on climate. You have written in your book, Conflicted, which I really loved and I recommend to everyone, and we'll talk about that, but you have written that the first three minutes of any conversation matters. So this is our first three minutes now. What do we need to do to make sure we don't hate each other immediately? How do we do it? Well, um, I, I think we just need to send the uh, appropriate signals to each other that we are interested in what the other person has to say. Okay. And that we're listening. So that's yeah. <laughs> stroking my chin. Is that good? Or yeah. <laughs> uh, but you could do it. You know, it's, it's in what you say. It's in the tone of your voice. It's, it's how, the time that you leave between responses and whether or not you kind of let the other person talk which obviously i'm gonna not do now I'm gonna talk 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 down the clock um 
but yeah it's 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 all sorts of things um usually you know it, these things ma- are quite easy for you and me to do because we sort of both agreed to this conversation we're not expecting to have an argument or, or a row um if you are in that situation it actually gets a lot uh, a lot harder it's that kind of first impressions thing right like you, you, you say in your book that yeah. if you turn up in a stroppy mood you're likely to make the other person stroppy is it really that simple uh, well, it's not that simple, but but there's something to that in, the, in that um, uh, a conversation is a kind of feedback loop. Um, so what what you're saying and how you're saying it is affecting how the other person feels and behaves, which then affects how you feel and behave. Um, and so, like other feedback loops, that can kind of spiral um one way uh or the other um and 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 when you feel when you feel it kind of escalating going in in one direction you kind of need to make an effort to to pull it back but yeah the the, the basic point is you should always be aware of the fact that how you are behaving is shaping the other person's responses and and vice versa so being aware of that that loop is i think really important um particularly in tense conversations yeah i was in a meeting the other day at work and the person i was with arrived and they were just kind of agitated i don't know what had been going on but they were definitely kind of enervated by something uh and it put i couldn't help it it made me feel kind of agitated and i found myself i noticed myself in the meeting that i was kind of talking faster um it's so interesting that, that happens and, and yeah I'm, you know i'm i'm you're sitting there and, and your your body language is very nice and calm and you're listening and i'm feeling relaxed um, yeah and, it, and it's it's hard to um it's hard to manage so so yeah we're, we're influencing each other all the time right so so our feelings our, our emotions or our physiology um uh they're, they're all kind of bound up with it with each other it's you know it was, everything's contagious probably not a good word to use right now but um <laughs> uh so um and just um being aware of that doesn't mean that you could automatically kind of deal with it in the right way because it's it's hard but it is a first step towards noticing it you know like you just noticed it you know with, with mm-hmm. when you're when this person was agitated and you noticed it was agitating you in another situation you might just think well, I'm feeling really agitated. That be, must be because I'm really angry about something. Yeah, I'm really angry. Um, and, uh, y- you know, you, 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 you're less aware of, of what's going on um, in, in the room. So, yeah, I think just being aware of these effects is, is a first step towards managing them well. How did you come to get interested in conflict, argument, squabbling with each other? Are you a squabbly kind of person? No, I'm not. And I, I don't like it. I mean... All, almost to a fault i'm i'm quite well to a fault i'm conflict averse um and i so perhaps i'm i'm more tuned than someone who isn't to the toxic arguments that we see around us in uh the media particularly on social media perhaps i spend too much time on twitter but that's you know i see these kind of futiles yeah yeah and and, and by the way the book is not just about that as you know um but but it's it's this it's the thing that got me thinking about it Mm. um and just seeing all these kind of toxic horrible uh, stupid you know arguments that generated all heat and no light got me thinking about 
why is this so hard, first of all, you know, to to have a discussion of differences that doesn't turn into uh, a a kind of playground fight? Um, And second, how do we how do we have more productive arguments? And actually, what, what I think what shifted in my thinking as I was researching the book was I started off thinking this is going to be a book about how to avoid conflict. Um, and just kind of talk everything through calmly. Sounds nice. And I, yes, it does sound nice. But then I came to think, actually, I came to believe very strongly that the real problem is not toxic conflict. The real problem is avoidance of conflict. So we see the toxic conflicts around us because lots of them are very visible, particularly nowadays. And we think, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to go. And, and m- many of us are already conflict averse. And then we see these very visible toxic conflicts. And we say, well, I'm just not getting into these arguments because they, they look horrible. I'm worried I'm going to damage my relationships with, with people. I'm worried it's going to stress me out. So I'm not going to have them. And when you do that, you, you, you give up, put aside, you don't get the huge benefits of disagreement and debate. You know, disagreement is a way of thinking. It is probably the way of thinking, actually. It's kind of almost what, what it is what we are evolved. It's how we're evolved to think and, and reason in dialogue with, with others. And it's a source of great creativity and energy. And when we put it aside, when we are so worried about the stress that it causes and the discomfort that it causes we're really just choosing to make ourselves a little bit dimmer and a little bit um, less creative and less interesting. So the book really became about how do we have conflict, actually? You know, how, how do we have our disagreements in the most productive, creative, energising way possible? So it's not about how to avoid it. It's not about just how to be calm and you know, just talk everything through very calmly. Because actually, that's that's not necessarily a good idea. Um, it's about how to have open, um, including quite heated and sometimes quite emotional disagreements that really kind of drive the conversation forward. So we were kind of alluding to this a bit in how we started this chat, but that all sounds well and good if you've got two people who are in a nice, civilised environment prepared to have a debate and disagree with each other. But what about... Because I'm, I'm like you, right? I'm definitely conflict averse and i'm aware of it and it probably causes me all sorts of problems in my life but that's because when people are really stroppy with me i find that upsetting so what can i do uh what, what do you do what, now that you've researched it and looked into it when people don't want to have a nice productive argument they just want to scream at you what do you do about that if somebody really just wants to scream at you, there, there may be nothing you can do about that um, other than let them scream at you or walk away. So I'm not saying there's a kind of um, uh, infallible solution to it. You know, at the end of the day, it, it does take two to tango, right? It takes two mm-hmm. or more people who have some degree of willingness to engage productively for this to work. However, what I would say is that most of the time that's not actually the problem. Most of the time the the problem is is when we meet any resistance at all from the other person, we just give up and and we dismiss the we avoid the conflict and we often dismiss the person as as kind of stupid or irrational, over emotional 
whatever, unwilling to engage, right? Often that's not the case. And you just have to be a little bit more skillful, perhaps a little bit more patient, a little bit more thoughtful about how you're engaging with them to, to kind of create the adversary you want. So it's a phrase I put, put in the book, right? You, <clears throat> this is not the same as persuasion. You're not necessarily trying to get them to agree with you. The object is to have a productive disagreement with an adversary who's going to engage in that disagreement productively. And there are things you can do to, to, to get them in that place. Everyone's got that uncle, right, who uh, likes to sort of point out that vaccinations are a plot and climate change is a communist hoax and all that sort of stuff. Um, okay, you may not be able to persuade them, but how can you uh, have a conversation around a dinner table that is at least a little bit less squabbly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think almost the first thing you have to do is put aside the object of persuasion. So one of the things that gets in the way of an interesting productive disagreement is you thinking, I need to persuade this person. I need to win this argument, right? Trying to win an argument is the enemy of productive disagreement. Um, you will not have a productive disagreement. Oh, but that's, that's confusing. <laughs> what happens when you win an argument? It's the end of the argument. So it's the end of the disagreement. So, you know, if you want, if you, if you genuinely believe in the, in the benefits of productive disagreement, you actually want to keep the disagreement going, you know, until it stops being interesting, until, it's, until, until either or both of you stop learning something. And, and, and you, you, you won't do that if you go in and say, right, I'm going to win this now. All you'll do is get stuck into a, a dominance struggle, right? So w one of the kind of, uh, principles of, of good disagreement is, is in the book. Uh, I, I call that chapter "Let Go of the Rope," and it came from. Uh, well, as you know, I, I have a lot of conversations. I, a big part of the research was talking to practitioners of really tough conflict-ridden conversations. So I talked to uh, hostage negotiators, talked to terrorist interrogators, <laughs> talked to divorce mediators and diplomats and addiction therapists and all sorts of people who have very tough conversations and found that a lot of these very different conversations have a kind of underlying themes. Um, the people that do them really well do the same things. And let go of the rope was was a phrase that came from an expert on interrogation. He's a guy who trains the -terror terrorist police in the UK and actually around the world in, in how to interrogate really hardcore terrorists. And he he repeatedly said in you know different ways but that that once the the conversation becomes me kind of trying to push you somewhere and them pushing you back, then you're not going to get any insight or information from them. Actually, it's in, in an interrogation situation, that's exactly where they want you to be. They want you to get stuck in a struggle like that. Um, what, what you're trying to do is lower the other person's defences so that they start thinking more freely and talking more freely in the case of interrogation, right? Really expert interrogators do not walk into the room and say, right, you need to tell me everything you know, or I'm going to throw the book at you, you know, or worse, right? 
because that just pushes that person immediately into a defensive crouch or an offensive crouch as a, as a means of defense, right? The expert interrogators, the really skillful interrogators actually go in and one of the things they do is emphasize the, the reading of the rights bit, right? So they don't just mumble and you know, walk in and say, yeah, you have the right not to talk, you have the right to a, a, a lawyer, right? Okay, let's, let's get into it. They walk in and say, look, you absolutely have the right not to, to, not to talk to me. It's up to you. I can't tell you what to do. None of these guys can tell you what to do. If you want to leave the room now, you can leave the room. Your lawyer can't tell you what to do. It's completely up to you. Mm. But I am interested in what you have to say. I, I just want I would like to understand how it is that you are come, coming to sit here today. Right now, I'm sure they do it, you know, sub, more subtly and better than that. But basically that approach is far more effective because these guys, these hardened terrorists actually will, will they really want to tell their story and they, they will um, open up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that actually applies to any conversation, right? So you might be having an argument with a climate denialist or an anti-vaxxer. And once you start getting into a dominance struggle where you're saying, yeah, but you, you are wrong about this. Let me explain to you why you're wrong, right? Hey, I love it when people say that to me. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Really? Who, li- yeah. I mean, who, who responds well to that? Who, and, and of course, what it does is it pushes the other person into the most intransigent version mm. of their argument. Maybe mm. not even one that they fully believe, right? But you're pushing them into that harder position. Whereas if you kind of show that actually you are genuinely interested in what they have to say uh, and why they think that, then their defences will lower a bit and they'll talk it through. And probably as they talk, they'll express more doubts. And you'll see it actually, they're not quite as batshit crazy as you thought they were. Um, you, you will probably still disagree with them about things and you won't be persuading them, but you'll see it actually, you'll get a much finer uh, map of the, 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 the territory of their belief system than than you would otherwise so you ju- you're just getting more information about them um so mm. uh yeah i mean this is kind of just one of the principles that, that that comes up over and over again you have to be genuinely curious about what, what i was gonna say thinks. right because that could you know there's a, that could all sound a little bit kind of transactional fraudulent right make people think you're interested and then go along with it for a bit and then you'll you know eventually win the argument but sounds like what you're saying is no 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 actually be interested actually you know understand that they might know something you don't have a position you don't that you might not be right and that's some humility at work there right you've got to be humble yeah be, be, yeah i mean humility which you know is not my strong suit right but and 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 you know i i don't want to be too, sound too pious about it but you have to has to be an element in your mind which is hey maybe i don't know everything here right now mm. people don't like that because they they get scared they think oh but then maybe i'll completely change my mind to become an anti-vaxxer look it's not going to happen right you're you're not going to flip positions on climate change or, or whatever it is in, in in this conversation so just relax a little and going back to what we were saying at the beginning, when you relax a little, you'll find that they relax a little. When you re- relax your grip on your position, they will relax their grip. Um, and you will find, you know, you- you'll just have a more interesting, richer, more su- uh, subtler, uh, more nuanced conversation than you would otherwise. 
Yeah, that thing you were saying about um, power struggles in arguments. It makes me think of arguments I've had in relationships. Obviously, previous relationships, in case my current partner is listening to this one. When you're like, what are we arguing about again? And you've been banging on for 20 minutes, increasingly screaming at each other. And the thing you ostensibly started squabbling about is now, you're now talking about breakfast cereal or what you did last Tuesday. And you realise you're not arguing about the thing at all. It, it is about yeah, the, something about you yourself and your relationship to this person. The, the feedback loop has kind of taken over, right? Or, or in, those, in that kind of argument, you're just kind of reacting to whatever the last, the, the last thing that the other person said and they're relaxed and, and vice versa. And the whole thing just kind of floats off and loses touch with any kind of reality. Um, and often, you know, one of the questions you should ask when you're mired in what seems like a pretty bad disagreement is, what are we actually disagreeing about? Here? <laughs> what, what is the fundamental? Because it's incredibly easy to lose that, right? It just becomes this kind of mm. fog um, of, of acrimony and, and conflict. And... When you're when you talk to communication scientists about conversations about disagreements in particular, they will say there's always two levels in any disagreement. There's the the content level and there's the relationship level. The content level is the thing that we are talking about, right? So we, I'm arguing with my wife about you know who's going to do the washing up this week, who's going to go to the shops this week, whatever. Um, and at the same time, there is an unarticulated level of disagreement. Mm. We're not saying it explicitly, but it's to do with what you think about me and what I think about you, whether I'm not, I'm getting enough appreciation and respect from you and vice versa. And those two levels are going on at the same time. And often one person is paying more attention to the relationship level than the other. You won't be surprised actually to find out when they do studies of this that women are more attuned to that relationship level than men are. So men are often like, well, why is she being so angry? We're just talking about whether or not we're going to take the bins out. She's yeah. getting all emotional. And she's like really tuned into the fact that you are just treating me like an idiot, right? She might not even say that, but that's mm. how she's feeling and therefore she's getting... So unless that relationship level is... She's ringing some is... uncomfortable bells, this conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and by the way, the interesting thing about this is that when they, when they, in the lab, when they pay men to pay attention to that relationship level, they can do it just as well as women. So it's not a question of oh, cognitive ability, it's, it's, it's motivation, right? Which, because we're usually on the kind of, you know, the right side of a power relationship, we don't feel like we have to pay attention to the rule. So anyway, um, uh, until you've got that relationship level settled, it, it just sort of disrupts the, the, the content level of the conversation, right? That's true in a, in a dyad, two people talking to each other. And I think it's true at this kind of wider societal level as well um that a lot of the things that are the the kind of irrational irrationality and craziness of the 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 content the political debates the political issues um are, are rooted in perceived imbalances of of power and respect and status your brain on climate
just before coming on here, I was uh, on Twitter, which is a thing. So I went about six months at the start of this year. I gave Twitter up. I was like, this is, this is not good for me coming on here. You know that thing when everything about the dynamic of it, I felt I was saying things so that people would respond to it. And I, I knew the tweets that would get a lot of likes because they were the ones that were saying something, having a pop at someone else. And you, I felt myself really sort of getting swept up in that kind of world. But yet, you know, an awful lot of the debate about climate change amongst people I know happens on Twitter. So like, do you think that Twitter's a good thing? And social media, Facebook, Instagram, all of it, TikTok, whatever the kids like. Is it a good thing? for getting agreement as a society on how to do something like climate change for us as people or what no um <laughs> i mean I, I think it is a good thing and yeah <laughs> i think it's a good thing in in uh lots of ways and a bad thing in some other ways but i don't think it's a good thing for having rich productive disagreements i'm not i mean i think it can be it's quite a good source of if you treat it as a kind of source of um, low stakes, light touch disagreement, where you're kind of bouncing around and kind of poking at ideas around and, and trying to say, yeah, but what about this? What about this? It's actually quite good because you, you, you have a kind of wide range of stimulus and wider than you would in your in your normal life. You can ask many different people or get feedback from many different people on a particular question. Uh, so you get the kind of lie of the land of, of uh, the, the territory of opinion on, on, on different questions very easily, very quickly. I think that's quite useful. Is it a good place for working out, you know, um, in, in step by step, uh, what the other person thinks and why they think it. No, first of all, because it's this little box with a, you know, every point has to be spelt out with a, with a few words, um, which doesn't enable you to get into the richness or nuance or depth of, of uh, a position. Um, second of all, it's, you, you get very little sense of the other person. Mm. Um, so, so in the book, I talk about low context communication and high context communication high context communication is when you have a very kind of rich shared cultural uh, background, cultural in the widest possible sense. But, you know, when I kind of understand the, the norms by which you are communicating, I, I kind of have a feel for what you mean by what you say, even when what you say isn't explicitly clear. That's high context. Mm. Um, and it tends to be, there's more emphasis on, on the relationship before the thing that we're disagreeing about low context conversation i've really little like no little no or little idea who you are or what your background is and the conversation becomes all about the disagreement just focused on this thing that we're disagreeing about um and that kind of right. kind of dominates my perception of you and if you're disagreeing with me that means you're a bad person and twitter mm. is a bit more like that um which is why it generates so much kind of animosity and irritation so i i think it is really um problematic from that point of view and um yeah i i i, I don't think it's a great tool for productive disagreement I, I think there are ways we can use it better so we can try and you know be better at using it but but it's it's not it's strong point let's face it it strikes me as one of those maybe a key area where actually how you behave on it will affect the kind of interactions you have on it so like what you were saying about yeah, conversations yeah. but writ large right and i was really uh, yeah when i started tweeting 10 years ago i would just you know 
call everyone a bastard and and have fun but all that happens then is other people call you a bastard and i now like if i even get into a debate at all it'll be very constructively very kind of worked out right so that's a good tip yeah well it, it um it's actually yeah it's interesting from that point of view because it's almost like you see all the ways that disagreements can go wrong very clearly and and then very quickly so it's like a hot house for bad disagreements and actually yeah. uh, at the very least that's useful for the rest of the world you know the rest of the time when you're kind of having disagreements you see oh okay i recognize what's happening here because i see it every day on on twitter um so those things that we were talking about as you say those feedback loops the way that we we mindlessly reciprocate the other's hostility um uh, and and the thing just sort of takes off you see that very plainly and very very happening very kind of quickly um and we should at least draw lessons from that and go oh, okay well this this is what happens this is what can happen let's let's think about ways to avoid that in the rest of our lives and of course the other thing that social media if you're not careful is is it just surrounds you with opinions that agree with your opinion right which is bad for all sorts of reasons it's sort of bad for um I know polarizing people into I think this and I think that but if you do it well you can use social media in a way that just allows you to see what people who don't agree with you are saying you don't have to you know get involved in that there was a, a thing I was looking at on Twitter just this morning where the Daily Mail has done something horrible about climate change right Kel Surprise it's got a headline about climate change and all of the kind of greeny climatey people on my feed were getting very upset about it and there was a bit of me thought well, just coming on Twitter and banging onto people who already agree with you about why someone that doesn't agree with you thinks a thing isn't engaging with the fact that the millions of people that read the Daily Mail think something differently to you. Um, so maybe there's a thing where we could be actively using social media to, at the very least, just understand that people have different opinions. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to change your position, but kind of sympathising a bit with that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a double bind here because um you're 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 both or it's double jeopardy i'm not sure what the phrase is but but two things are pointing in the same same direction one is that you are probably talking to and engaging with most people who agree with you right and you're following most people who are kind of in your uh ideological space and at the same time, you're getting these kind of intruders, these interruptions from the other world, which just kind of float by your, you know, so somebody will, will quote, tweet or retweet, you know, whoever your bogeyman is, Piers Morgan or whatever, and and, and they're saying something completely disgusting and repulsive, or they'll kind of quote mm. a yeah, Daily Mail article, which in another world you wouldn't actually have seen. You know, in a, in a way, the problem with Twitter is not filter bubbles, it's, it's that it breaks everyone's filter bubble. Um, mm. um, in the most kind of abruptive, rude, kind of interruptive way possible. And you're suddenly seeing this full range of really horrible opinions just sort of flash past your eyes. And that puts you in this state of kind of constant anger and um, and anxiety. And therefore you flock to the people who do agree with you. And you say, look at all these terrible people. And they go, yeah, I know, they're really <laughs> terrible people, aren't they? Good god everyone's awful thank god we're not so, like them eh us over here thank exactly. god we're the good we're people like them and, and yeah. we all have those yeah we talk amongst ourselves about how awful those people are over there that, 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 that keep kind of running across our screens um so what's the answer to that i i, I see people saying and i see people saying well you should follow the people that you disagree with 
on Twitter because then you'll get a more diverse uh, array of views, which I sort of half agree with, right? Because actually that can backfire. If you follow the most sort of rebarbative, stupid, rude people who disagree with you, right, they're, they're just going to reinforce your own sense of self-righteousness because that they will confirm to you that the other side really is stupid and rude and prejudiced mm. and w- mm. whatever it is. Because you see, you know, not to name names, but people like Toby Young. You know, if you start following Toby Young to get an idea of how people on on the other side of your ideological divide think, um, you'll come away thinking, yeah, I was completely right about these idiots, right? They're not. In, they're not. And you'll come up with thinking. high blood pressure as well, presumably. You, yeah. So, so that's a bit pointless. In fact, it's it's actually a, it backfires. What you should do, and this is not always easy, but you should seek out people who you, you disagree with, who you like mm. or respect. And um, when you find those people, cherish them. What is it is going on in the brains of people who look at all the science of climate change or all the science of why vaccines are okay or all the science of, you know, insert other thing here where the science is very, very clear that a thing is a good idea and yet will completely take the opposite position. So, you you know, anti-vaccination, for example, right? We all know people, I am sure, who are anti-vaccine. And I find having conversations with those people really, really tricky. But what is it at a sort of psychological level is going on inside the heads of people who just have that kind of really extreme reaction to something that everyone else thinks is common sense? Okay, I I, I don't know. It's a a complex question, but but let me kind of uh, try out one or two kind of theories here. One of them is that uh, often the, the, the position that somebody takes on an issue is actually a, a function of where they feel they are in a power relationship, right? So there's a very kind of strong streak of human nature which says, you know, I don't want to be pushed around. You know, I don't want to be told what to do. And and actually, I will I will adjust my if I feel that I'm being talked down to, or patronised, condescended, or subtly kind of pushed around, I will push back, uh, even if that means taking a position that, frankly, I you know, the, the, the actual content of the position becomes less important than my p- reaction here. And often, when you deal with someone and you think, oh, why is this person being so irrational, and so crazy um so and maybe they're being kind of over emotional whatever it is have a think about why you know whether or not they feel like they're on the wrong end of a power relationship and they're trying to they're trying to deal with it um uh now i I, so i think there's an element of that in uh people who are who, who take up positions very strongly which are kind of contra to the mainstream approved official opinion, which, by the way, is often proved to be wrong. So, you know, we, we can't just always accept that it's, hey. it's going to be right. I mean, I've, um, I've been doing climate yeah. stuff long enough to remember when, you know, it was a bit cranky to say 
maybe we shouldn't be burn, burning all them fossil fuels quite so fast. You know, things can change. There was definitely a time right. when people would have thought I was the crank. You know, probably still do a lot of people. Right. Maybe I am. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, and I think if people, I, I think the kind of the the politics of this is that is that some people feel like they've been let down by experts um by elites um too many times and they just don't trust them anymore and almost what they say you know whatever they say i'm going to oppose it right um because that's a way of raising my status in this conversation right it's become a kind of status competition Uh, if i just go along with a proved opinion well i'm and that almost just makes me a nobody because i'm just conforming to what everybody else is saying if i'm feeling a bit insecure about my status in in society generally um then taking up a position that that makes me feel a little bit smarter than everyone else more informed than everyone else um certainly means i can't be patronized or talked down to at least on i don't feel i can because i feel i know better then that's quite a powerful reason for me to to keep holding that position because i feel like then if i kind of give in and say oh maybe you're right about climate change i'm i'm submitting essentially right to 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 dominance it's interesting because it when you describe it like that it feels simultaneously that feels right, it feels true, but it also feels like, can that really be what's happening here? You know, can it really be that um, there are still millions of people in the UK, many more millions in the US, for example, who will not only say climate change is made up, but will who who will kind of revel in that? So it, it, it's, I guess when it's sort of, you take that and you say it's not just a couple of individuals who feel like they are, their status is personally threatened by expertise, by experts, I don't want to sort of belittle it, but that actually that can ripple across a society at large. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, 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 don't think, I don't think it's hard to believe at all. I mean, it's harder for me to believe that you would get millions of people who, you know, uh, agree with whatever the people at the top say. I suppose. I mean, yeah. the, the extent of the consensus is the surprising thing to me, if anything. Um, I think in a very democratic, egalitarian public sphere like we have, it's perfectly natural thing to say, well, these idiots that are... I mean, we do it all the time in other contexts. You know, we, we constantly talk about That's how... True. We're, the, the world is run morning. by idiots, yeah. by you know, by terrible yes. people. They're all idiots, blah blah blah. And then what? We're 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 surprised when people, some people say, well, climate change. That's another part of this idiocy. Um. I don't think that's surprising at all. But it's so interesting, isn't it? Because even as you're saying that, I'm catching myself going, oh, yeah, but climate change is different. Because, yeah, I definitely think that Boris Johnson's done all these things wrong. And I definitely think that science has got loads of things wrong. And I, you know, blah, 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 blah. But yet I can feel myself going, but because I know so much about the science of climate change. And here's the thing, right? I'm not a scientist. I don't actually know what the science of climate change is. Like, I don't, I'm taking it on no. faith that the world's single, you know, that all of the scientists and all of the processes is happening. Same as, actually, I don't know that if I get the AstraZeneca vaccine, which I did, it isn't going to make my head fall off. I don't know that, but I am choosing to accept. And yeah, you're right. And I'm thinking about it now and I'm going, well, why do I think that? And, you know, yes, okay, there's the science, but I think it because people that I trust pretty much seem to think that too. Really? Yeah, it does come down to 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 um, 
to trust in other people. Yeah, you, you're, you're right. And one of the interesting things about climate change denialists, right, to use that loaded word for a minute, um, is that, and other forms of, of kind of extreme contrarianism, is that the people involved often have, are, are smarter and have more information than average about this topic, I mean, you see this, you know, you go to the, uh, not that I spent a lot of time there, but if you go to these message boards, forums where they're mm. discussing this, you, you'll see them quoting all sorts of like data and technical information, which is beyond the ken of me and and most people. But they seem to have ended up in what i pretty sure is completely the wrong place, right, on it. But it's not because they're more stupid and it's not because they have less information. Um, it's something else. That's why, I, you know, we go back to these more kind of human... These, these issues to do with trust and relationships which kind of underpin it there's a report comes out every week now saying climate change is really 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 bad and getting worse and we've had a summer of bad, bad, bad stuff happening. And time, you know, we're continually told time is running out. And we're not campaigning hard enough or doing enough. And if you're one of the people who really wants action on climate change to happen now, I've been here personally, right? That can get, you can get very personally dragged up in that, very personally kind of burned out, very personally on edge, right? And I'm interested to sort of wrap this conversation up and find out, even though you know you are right, about something that you see as having fundamental importance for humanity, there are still ways that you can have conversations with people, have conflict, have productive disagreement, that can be better or worse. So what are your tips, if you have any, for something as high stakes and emotive as climate change, where you're caught up in it, your identity is subsumed in it? What are the few things we need to try to make sure we do at all times? <laughs> Wow, I don't know. But um, I would say maybe one thing is don't let your identity become subsumed by it. Um, the, the, the more that your identity and your sense of self is, is tangled up with your, your, your belief and the arguments that you make, uh, the less likely you are to really engage critically and, and, and clearly and respectfully with people who disagree, because every time they disagree, you feel like it's an attack on you. And if you feel like when a disagreement is an attack on you, then, you know, your defence mechanism is going to be triggered and you, you are going to be, you know, a, a, aggressive and unpleasant and hostile, or you're just going to you know, avoid the disagreement altogether and you're not going to make any kind of dent in, in anybody else's worldview. I think one of the issues we have at the moment is that people's sense of self, their sense of identity is tied up too much with their political beliefs. And I actually think we could do a little bit more about separating them, you know, actually kind of shrinking your identity and saying, OK, let me just take this one step at a time. Let's work out what this issue is. And it's it doesn't actually say anything about who i am i i'm happy to just be me you know a, a, a husband a wife um you know, somebody who likes 
the Beatles. I'm just talking about myself now. Um, I, I, it doesn't. I don't have to be. You know, and this is the problem with the label activist. Once you say, "Oh, well, I'm a, I'm an activist," that means mm. you go, you're going into every conversation thinking, "Right, well, I have to." win this you know um and it means that actually you just end up pushing the other person into a more intransigent position so a lot of what i'm talking about and have talked about you know the last 40 minutes is just trying to lower the other person's defenses and often that means lowering your other defenses um and that means not thinking so hard about what this says about me as a person God, the mission to make a listeners i was so drawn to the concept of ian's book and i hope after listening to that chat you are too because i'm properly conflict averse i've always been so interested in it it makes me kind of clam up and and be scared i've worked on it you know hopefully i'm getting better at it but i've always known there are better and worse ways to doing it and learning that there are good and bad ways to disagree but it is worth doing it feels kind of profound, kind of empowering, particularly in a space like climate change, where there is an awful lot of disagreement to be had, and sometimes you don't have to look very far to find it. And something that's really struck me in all my time working on climate change is how easy it is, how kind of lazy, how comforting almost it is to look at people who don't think climate change is a problem, or maybe think it is a problem but aren't as worried about it as you are, and to almost dismiss them outright immediately to think they're stupid because they either don't agree with us or because they don't appear to have the same kind of mental framework for approaching a problem that you do it's so easy to do but we've got to lose that mindset i'm really really trying to lose that mindset when you do lose that mindset it feels like you can see that sometimes we are the problem right how I have talked to people about climate change in the past, I'm thinking back to chats I've had with like relatives when I was newly getting into this and full of the zeal of the issue. I'm finding myself talking to people in a kind of half-hectoring and preaching and half-kind of dismissive way. And people saying to me, oh, I don't... Either they didn't understand something or they felt they didn't understand it or perhaps more that it didn't seem to resonate with the way they approached the world. And rather than me just going, oh, that's interesting, let's learn more about how you approach the world, I just kind of shut my ears to it. And I found myself trying to win conversations, trying to win arguments, trying to get people to conclude, yes, you are right. But that's not how things work. That never, ever works if anyone does that to me. Quite the bloody opposite. When we talk about things like climate change, I think we have to understand that it is really closely related to how people think about a vast amount of stuff. How they think about themselves, how they think about the story themselves in the world, who they trust, all of these kind of things. Climate change is like a scientific phenomenon, but it's so much more than that. It's about life and being alive and people's ideas about being alive. And we have to learn about that. Everyone does. Like Everyone from every possible perspective has to learn about that. We have to be humble. Because you're not going to persuade people if you're just convinced you are right and they are wrong. It doesn't work like that unless you are phenomenally good at sales. And you have to be aware of your power relationship. One of the most profound things I think that Ian said in that chat was like when there is a disagreement, it's really often because somebody thinks that they're on the wrong side of a power dynamic. Somebody thinks somewhere that they're having a mickey taken out of them. And just to pause in any given conversation with anyone where it doesn't seem to be going the way you want and think, who's got the power here? 
Who's dominating this conversation? Is it me and how would I feel if I was on the other side of it? That was Your Brain on Climate, uh, episode four of the first series. Thank you so much to Ian for coming to do that. You have to go and read his book, Conflicted, if you are remotely interested in anything we've talked about here. Uh, You can find Ian on the internet. Just search for Ian Leslie. He also does a really good newsletter called The Ruffian, which I applaud and recommend to you in the highest possible terms. Uh, Thank you very much for making it this far through the podcast. You can drop me an email, please do, to hello at yourbrainonclimate.com. Let me know what you thought or the podcast is on twitter at brain climate and please if you do nothing else pootle over to your podcast medium of choice and take 30 seconds if that to leave a little review with your hands and a five star rating if you think it's worth five stars it makes such a massive difference particularly for new shows when i'm trying to get the word out there help attract more guests help attract more listeners make dave happy make better podcast Right, that's it. I'll be back next week for another episode of Your Brain on Climate. And I both do and don't hope that you find yourself in a squabble with someone this week. But you know what to do if you do. Okay, bye. Bye.